Amen. Y'all can be seated. The gospel. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For forty days and forty nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away, and angels came and took care of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, so this is a, a series I began when I was out here last time called Following Jesus, and each week we're looking at just real the basic, or the basic fundamentals of what it means to follow Christ, and it seems totally appropriate that as we move into the season of Lent, the traditional uh, first Sunday in Lent reading is from this passage that Charlie just read. It's actually, we find this passage in three different places. I think we have a slide up here. We find it in Matthew, which was just read. We find it in Mark. We find it in Luke. And it's really the same narrative. Mark's just one little line. But the other two are almost identical, except the temptations are usually turned around and look a little bit different. But the whole parallel is, is that the idea is that this is a 40-day uh, temptation of Jesus in the desert. And during the season of Lent, it's 40 days minus Sundays. Sundays you can go crazy, okay? Uh, but the other 40 days that we are fasting, we are praying, we are coming back, to Christ, coming back to Christ, in many ways we are walking alongside him in the desert. That's the, that's the whole idea of Lent. That is a part of us of shedding the things, getting rid of the things that are actually bringing us down, pulling us away from God, pulling us away from the light, pulling us into the shadows. And Ash Wednesday begins it all when we put the cross in our head. It's a reminder that we have a lifespan. There is a beginning for us, and there is an end. There are a number of our days. And what do we do in between that? How do we prepare when we pass from this life to the next? And we look forward, really, to Easter morning, the hope of Easter, that this is not the end, is it? There's a better world that's there for us. And this journey coincides with the 40 days Jesus spent in the desert. And the accuser's goal, that's, he's often, Satan and the Bible's often called by several names, the accuser, the liar, the devil. But all what he does is basically to get us to begin to question 
what God gives us and say basically you can find peace, you can find purpose, you can find contentment in everything else but God. And we're going to see it here in these temptations. But the overarching theme for this entire passage and really through almost you could say the entire New Testament, and I want to put it up here, there is a supernatural world in our universe. There is a supernatural reality in our cosmos. There is a supernatural evil that exists in our world. And this is the reason why Paul says in the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, for our fight is not only against flesh and blood, is it? But it's against those forces that are seen and unseen, against evil rulers, authorities, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now, I, I need to say this because this is absolutely crucial to understanding this entire passage. And I'm reminded of a, of a conversation, maybe it's three years ago, we had a funeral over the Story campus and a wonderful woman, I can't remember who it was exactly, but she had died and her, and her, her granddaughter was, given, was eulogizing her and she had graduated from USC, USC West, with a, uh, she had a, a PhD in philosophy. And I remember her saying to me after the service was over, it was a great conversation, but she said, yeah, my grandmother actually believed that there was a devil and there was evil. And I said, well, you got to know, I, I believe that too. And she said to me, you seem educated though. <laughs> and I realized though that, I mean, I love talking to her, but she was sharing what's become an increasingly more of a popular opinion that there really is not evil or Satan or the devil, that almost everything can be explained through biology, through science, uh, through cultural mores through, through uh, the brokenness of people, but the whole idea that evil exists is, is not really true. And what I told her, is I, and I'm telling you now, um, if you think you can reduce evil to biological, sociological, and psychological factors, that, it's, that in other words, what she said, it's controllable and it's fixable. If you believe that, I said, you are setting yourself up for a gigantic fall and you are going to be blindsided sometime in the next few years when you begin to realize that's not true. And you're setting yourself up for huge disappointment is what I told her. And there are aspects to evil that are beyond just the natural, what we can observe. And let me just give you an example of this. Last year, I listened to many books on Audible. I was listening to a book on... Uh, FDR, and it was about his, how he kind of came back to the faith uh, the last year of his life, and it, the, what drove him really to come back to the faith was in really the last year of his life, he was kind of the, the typical New England secular liberal. They kind of basically believed that um, through education that human beings were basically good, and that through just teaching people the right ways and through cultural and education and science, we, people are basically good. And therefore, he said the greatest shock of his life, even more than his polio diagnosis, the greatest shock of his life is when he began to hear reports coming out of Germany. He did not believe it. And the reason why he did not believe it is because he said human beings are basically good. And that is a beautiful country. It's wonderful people. There's no way 
people could do this kind of brutality on somebody else. We know war is ugly, but this is, he just didn't believe it. And when finally, I think it was maybe three months before he died, four warm strings inter- intervened, uh, he began to actually get the real reports that were coming out of Germany that there was a systematized murder of millions of people, the greatest shock of his life. And it drove him back to God because he just could not believe human beings could do this to other people. And so he went to his parish priest there in New York and he said, How is it? What, please explain this. And the parish priest said to him, Franklin, have you not read the Bible? And let me give you some Christian theologians. Have you not read Kierkegaard? Have you not read Augustine? And so Roosevelt went back to the Bible and there, it's right there that it says about evil and sin is at the heart of man. And for Roosevelt, this opened his eyes to everything to realize this explains injustice, this explains poverty, this explains division, this explains why there's so much violence. Because he thought you just could educate people out of that. And the Bible explains how evil and the devil work. It's, and I think this is what caught Roosevelt so off guard. It's nuanced, it's sophisticated, it's, it's not simplistic is what people want to make it out to, like a little red guy with horns and a little pitchfork. That's why it catches people so off guard. And when you look at this passage here that Charlie just read, and you read the, the Luke passage, uh, you don't see Satan, okay, having Jesus kind of in a headlock, saying, you're going to obey me. He is using, Satan is using Scripture to try to trick Jesus, <laughs> to trick the guy who actually wrote it, wrote the Bible. And if you read there, it says over and over, it says the accuser, the liar, tempted Jesus. The, I looked, up, looked this up, the word tempted in the Greek, it literally means to put enough pressure on something or somebody that you break them internally through our minds, through our heart, through, through, our, through our psyches. Remember last time I was here? What do you gain if you, you get the entire world and yet you lose your psyche, you lose your, the essence of who you are? That is what the accuser is after. That's what we see here in this passage here. And this passage shows us three ways in which the accuser, the liar, Satan goes after, not only goes after Jesus, but he also goes after us. Let me put the first passage up here. For 40 days and 40 nights, it says he fasted, Jesus did, there in the desert. He's very hungry. And during that time, the devil, the accuser, came to him and said, if you are the son of God, if, if you are the son of God, tell these, turn, these stones to turn into bread. And the whole point of this is the accuser is trying to get Jesus Christ off his mission to get him off where he's headed. And underneath all this is to get him to, to basically, I want to put the first point up here, to constantly question the goodness of his father. Because after all, he'd say, what kind of father would leave you out here to starve in the desert? Who, who does that? And he uses hunger, think about that. Satan uses hunger, a natural thing that God gave us, and he says, why are you starving? Doesn't your father love you? If you have the power, you can change this. You can feed yourself. And this, you know, when I looked, I, I, I started thinking, where else have I heard this before? You know, do you, do you really believe God wants to do this for you? 
Where have we heard this before? If you go all the way back to the garden, thank you, from the Garden of Eden, did your father really say that? Did God really say that? He doesn't have your best interest in here. There is a better way. He wants us to constantly question the goodness of God. Because if you cannot rely on God's goodness, then you will just try to find it somewhere else. Let me, let me illustrate. Um, so last week, I was in a conversation with one of the college students I'm pretty close to, and for this last six months, we've been praying for her. She's been getting, trying to get into medical school, and I've constantly said to her, listen, we are praying for God's will here, first and foremost, but we can also tell God the desires of our hearts, and so she called me, and she was really upset. Last week, she found out she did not get an MUSC, um, and she's going to wait another year, But what I told her, I'm telling you now, and I think this is a source of comfort for her. I said to her, listen, did you pray about this? And she said, constantly. I had my family praying for this. And I said, you know, we're just going to have to believe and know that this is God's will. If you took it to God and and you're not, this is not, you don't have bad motives. If you took this to God and he said, no, we're just going to have to believe this is what he wants right now. Do not question the goodness of God. He's got a better plan. And so she's going to re-up next year, praise God. The main strategy of the tempter is to tell you you're, you do not have a good father. You need to question that. And we just to believe that the will of God is stronger and better than the will of the accuser. And by the way, Jesus says here, let me put it up here, and Jesus told him, I love this, no, no, the scriptures say, God says, my father says, do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's a higher truth here than just hunger. There's a higher cause. You're not taking me off mission. Okay, I'm not going to begin to question the goodness of my father. And then at the very end of this passage, the very end of this passage here, there's a temptation where, let me put it up here, it says, the devil took him to a peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and showed them all their glory. And he says, you can have all of this if you just will bow the knee to me and worship me. Now what is the tempter, the accuser, the liar trying to get us to buy into here? And that is this, the tempter wants us to choose an earthly kingdom over a heavenly kingdom, saying this is the better way. This will lead to prosperity. You cannot trust your father. And what the devil was doing, what the accuser was doing, is he was trying to move Jesus away from God's plans, his father's plans, and that his father's plans was Jesus was always headed to the cross. And Satan's like, I am not going to let you get there. Because what does the accuser want? He wants, he wants painless shortcuts. And he will always offer a ton on the front end, all these promises, all these lies on the front end, and he'll give you nothing on the back end. What do you profit? What do you gain if you get everything, if you gain the world? You can have all this, and yet in the process, you lose your, you lose your soul. And what's important to see here is we can never, and I think I need to really say this with some authority, we can never make evil just simplistic. 
which is what caught Roosevelt so off guard, that is so nuanced and so complex. And let me give you an example of this. So uh, last week in, um, yeah, last week our family, and they put the picture up here, we, our family went to see The Chosen. Have you, any of y'all seen this? All right. It's about the story of seeing through the eyes of those who knew Jesus. Um, and it's, just, it's been remarkable watching this because it's just filling in some kind of highly educated uh, scholarship of what the apostles, what these early followers were doing in between the stories that Jesus was telling. And uh, it's been so fascinating to me because this last season, they finally, Judas is finally coming to the picture. And you see very early on that it seems like he really wants to follow after Jesus. He seems like his heart is, seems like it's in the right place. And yet we know from where he started to where he ended could not have been more different. And you begin to see this character arc kind of building in here. And the question I think that Lisa and I were talking about this the other day, it's how did he go from someone who was honestly seeking Christ to in the end betraying him? And evil is rarely simplistic. It's always nuanced. It's always complex. And you see Judas Judas go from someone, I'm going to serve you, to suddenly beginning, he began to have envy. He began to have resentment. He began to have pride. And Jesus was, and I'm just, you know, paraphrasing here. He's saying to Judas over and over again, if you cannot swallow your pride, you can never follow me. If you cannot eat your pride, if you cannot bury your ambition, you're not fit to lead. And because of that, this is why Judas fell in this trap. He, he took the world's, the kingdom of this world, instead of the kingdom of God. And I want to say it's really easy to feel contempt for Judas, but what I'm realizing this is the real challenge for every single believer here is to face the ugly reality for all of us here that there is a potential in all of us to be a Judas. I mean, put in the wrong circumstances, facing the right amount of pressure, every one of us is capable in here of betraying Jesus, every one of us. And therefore, I think the honest question is to ask ourselves, God, give me the grace for this day, give me the grace for this week, this month, to never betray you. Your kingdom over everything else. And lastly, the temptation that is sandwiched in the middle of these, or we find in Luke, at the last part of the the last temptation, is this passage up here where it says, the devil took him to the holy city, the Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, if you really are who you say you are, then jump off and see if the scriptures are right and that the angels will come and protect you and they will hold you up and, and they'll guard you from basically you know, being crushed, falling to your death. And there's a lot going on here, but let me just dumb it down to where that has meant something to me that I'm now sharing with you. And that is what I see in here at least one part of this passage, is the tempter is trying to make, right here, God one-dimensional. One-dimensional. And you may, what, what are you talking about here? Well, one of the, the, the two great attributes of God that we see throughout the 
really throughout the Bible, but certainly in the New Testament, is the love of God and the holiness of God together. They are never separate. They're always together. And that is, that is the holiness of God is God has a, a standard. And he's the judge over the standard that we all sit under and that we're condemned under in many ways. There's this standard here, a holiness. And then there's the love of God over here, of a loving, forgiving father. And they always go together. They're never split. And what Satan's chief goal is to divide the two, where they're never together, where God is either one or the other. He's either all judge, all holy, and no forgiveness, or he's all love and there is no standard. And if you look at our world this day, this, we see this all over the place, all over the place. Listen, do whatever you want. God loves you. You can, you can follow what you want. I mean, he, he's a forgiving father. God loves you. There is no standard here. And how he does this, the tools he uses to tell us this is through two things, temptation and accusation. He is the great tempter and he is the great accuser here. And he does this through, through sin and shame and guilt and he does this to try to destroy us, to have us lose our psyche, lose the essence of who we are. And therefore the devil will tempt us by taking the love of God and the holiness of God and splitting the two. Listen, let's live only the way you want. There is no standard. In the end, God, God loves you, God forgives you. Or look how bad you are. You could never approach God. Look at the ultimate, just look, how, look what, what you've done. And this is how he does it, okay? Cramner famously wrote, what the heart wants, okay, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And here's how it works. This is how the temptations work. The great tempter, the great accuser comes in and he says things like this. You know your spouse? Um, they're not giving you what you really need. The, the, they are not providing for you intimately. They're not giving you emotional support. And you look at all these other people. Look, look how happy they are. You deserve better than this. You can find that intimacy in other places. Or another temptation. You know in your workplace, they have been mistreating you. For, they've been underpaying you for years. Look how much money you make for that place. And look how little they give it to you. You shouldn't have to put up with this. And yet, they're never going to give it to you. So it's, it's totally appropriate to try to get some under the table when they're not looking. It's totally fine to do that. In fact, other people are doing it. You know it. Or another temptation. You know your neighbor or the other people, how they treat you. They show you no respect. They take advantage of you. And it, you, you need to know, you should, don't let them get one over you anymore. You need to start warning other people about them. Or another temptation. You see your friends in school, they're cheating on these tests and you're not and they're getting away with it. Look how well they're doing and look how bad you're doing. You can get away with it. You can do it. No one will see it. And this is how the temptations work. Don't worry. God loves you. God forgives you. And 
it's right there, the temptation. And the minute you sin, the minute you take the bait, the minute you enter into temptation, he is right there. And no longer it's about the temptation. He is now the accuser. Look at you. Look what you've done. How can you look yourself in the mirror? Who would ever do that? And you call yourself a Christian. You've done it one too many times. God will never forgive you after this. How dare you show up and act? How dare you come to church like this when, you don't, when people don't know what's going on behind the scenes? The temptation, he promises all this to you. You go for it, and then he accuses you. And this is how it works. And this is, this is, and this is nothing but the tempter trying to make this into religion. Do you remember what I said last year about religion, the difference between religion and the gospel? Religion is, okay, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. The gospel is, I messed up. I really need to call my dad. And calling your father, what is he going to tell you? And the answer is right here in this passage here. It's right in our faces here. Right here. So here's what I want you to hear. When the tempter and the accuser and the liar comes into you and, and, and offers these temptations and, and you fall into them and he accuses you, the first thing you need to do is you need to remember the scriptures. Why do I say that? Because it says it right there in the passage here. Every single time the tempter comes in to Jesus, what does he do? He quotes scripture. There's a higher truth going on here. And by the way, this is the reason why the Apostle Paul writes, I think so, it's such a penetrating passage here. Temptations in your life, he says, are no different when other people, other people experience, okay? But our God, our Father, he's faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted more than you can possibly stand. And so when you are tempted, he's saying here, God is always going to provide a way out for you to be able to endure, for you to, be, to stand up. So what I'm saying is when the tempter comes and tells you, take this, there is a way out, okay? There is a ripcord, in other words, to get out of there. There is always a way out. But secondly, secondly, if we do fall into it and the accuser comes, what I want you to know is always always behold, behold the cross. The cross is the ultimate decider that stands over all of history. This is our ace, now and always. Because you know what? On the cross, what do we see? We see both the holiness and the judgment of God and also the love of God together at the same time. They're never removed. And so when the devil comes to us and tempts us and accuses us and throws our sins in our face and said, how can you call yourself a Christian? How dare you? God will never forgive you. You deserve death and hell. You know what we can tell him? <laughs> okay. You know what? I absolutely do deserve death and hell. But what of it? Because I know one who suffered my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I am, am also. Stick it. <laughs> the cross stands over all of this. So when he comes, just 
this is, why we're, this is why we're pushing scriptures and small groups and all this, why this is so essential to remember this. He will flee. And then secondly, to always remember the cross. We have, we have such a good father. His kingdom will reign forever. Behold the cross, the holiness of God and the love of God together. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we are about to come to your table, we ask, Lord, that as we approach here this morning, may we, may we come as a humble people, Lord, um, asking this morning that your Holy Spirit may come into this sanctuary, into our hearts, that we might be, in a way, uh, made holy in your sight, and also at the same time remember your great love for us. Help us, Lord, as a people of God, to continue to follow after you, knowing all the time that your great goodness as a good father chases after us. It's in your name we ask and pray these things. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.